But let's orient ourselves in the structure of the book here first. We're continuing with our geographical structure of the book. And we are in the middle portion. So we have the beginning where we're at Sinai. And then there's the travel. Then there's the middle bit where they're at Kadesh. That is Kadesh Barnea. And this is where we are. And we're going to come to the end of that section tonight. And tomorrow, or not tomorrow, but next week is going to pick up the next travel portion to the promised land. And they're going to enter uh, get ready to enter, I should say, by the end of this book. And then these chapters that we're in today, without detailing all of them, actually contain the 40 years of wilderness wandering in them. It's actually going to pick up again in the 40th year, as we will see. So there's going to be further statutes that add to the Lord's law. And this is also going to have the narrative low point of the book of Numbers. This is the biggest bummer of a chapter, and it's certainly the low point of Moses' life. And we can sympathize with Moses in the story that we'll get to in chapter 20 because we can ask ourselves this question, how is the church, or we could broaden it out, how is an individual Christian supposed to be a spiritual leader in the spiritual wilderness? It's easy when you're seeing victories like the parting of the Red Sea and manna being sent from heaven, but what about when the generations begin to pass and the losses begin to pile up, and instead of glory to glory, it feels like defeat to defeat. So we're going to look at that and see how Moses handled it, and, and for once, he's actually going to be a bad example for us tonight. But let's begin by getting into chapter 18, and we're going to do some large sections and just summarize them because most of this is not new in chapter 18. So the Lord said to Aaron, note, not to Moses, to Aaron this time, you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. Little note there, the word join, that they may join you, is actually a play on words in the Hebrew word Levi. They are related to one another. They shall keep guard over you, verse 3, and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die." They, that is the Levites, shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath upon the people of Israel. We've seen a lot of that in recent chapters. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, Aaron the priest, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The last thing we saw at the end of chapter 17 was kind of an abrupt ending to the story. Moses brought out the, the 12 rods of the different tribes, and Aaron's, you remember, had budded. It had produced flowers and actually whole almonds that were ripe for the plucking on Aaron's staff. And the people in verses 12 and 13 panicked because they said, how are we supposed to survive encounters with this God. Because remember, they kept on rebelling and kept on being struck down with plagues and fire from the Lord God. So they see a miracle like that that shows that God is able to take a dead stick and turn it into a living branch not attached to a tree. And they go, how are we supposed to survive this? And then you start chapter 18 and we have rules about the priesthood. And we say, what's going on here? 
Well, let's look at this a little broadly. God is speaking to Aaron to reaffirm the role of the priests and the Levites. And the reasons he give is that the priests were to bear iniquity, that is, by their sacrifices and the things they did, so that there would, he said, never again be wrath on the people. He's answering through this section of law, what he's answering their question. How are we supposed to dwell in the presence of a God like this, who is full of wrath and judgment and fire? He says, by observing the law and the priesthood that I have given to you. And that is why God speaks directly to Aaron. God only ever does this here and then in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8, when he tells Aaron uh, to approach him in holiness when his sons, Nadab and Abihu, are killed. So this is to reaffirm the role of the priests and the Levites. They were to minister the sacrifices so as to atone for sin while the Levites served and helped out carrying ashes and things like that. And the Levites, see, also were to keep guard around the holy place so that nobody could approach it and accidentally come into contact with the, you might say a term, the contagious holiness of the Lord that was, in fact, deadly to come near to God that way. So God is making provision for this and reminding them the priests and the Levites are to do this job. Verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Behold, I have given you charge of the contributions made to me, all the consecrated things of the people of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual due. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire. So these are portions of the offerings that are given. Every offering of theirs, every grain offering of theirs, and every sin offering of theirs, and every guilt offering of theirs, which they render to me, shall be most holy to you and to your sons. In a most holy place shall you eat it. Every male may eat it. It is holy to you. This also is yours. The contribution of their gift, all the wave offerings of the people of Israel, I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. All the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the grain, the first fruits of what they give to the Lord, I give to you. The first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. So he's not talking about you will then keep the firstborn children as servants or slaves, but they will instead pay the price, which we've talked about before. And their redemption price, at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. I read that that was approximately six months' wages. But the firstborn of a cow, or the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar, and shall burn their fat as a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But their flesh shall be yours, as the breast that is waved, and as the right thigh are yours. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you, and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. We discussed in Leviticus what a covenant of salt was. It means it was preserved. It will last forever. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. 
Now, we've learned this before. The priests were to be supported and paid from the contributions of the people. We've looked at this all before, so I'll just summarize. A piece of every offering, except for the whole burnt offering, would be given to the priests in order to provide for them. The first fruits would be given to them. All the redeemed creatures would be given to them. He says, your families are allowed to eat it. This is how they would have money, how they would have oil, which was used for a number of things. This was to repay them for their service in the sanctuary, which we just identified was to atone and propitiate the wrath of God for the people. Point is, they deserved this for the work that they were doing. And if the people were ever prepared to believe that they deserved it, it was right now, after all the people had been killed for trying to arrogate themselves to that role. It was a dangerous job if you were going to do it in your flesh. But in verse 20, you see, you can hear, well, so they just got the best portions of everything? Well, yes, but in verse 20, they did not have any inheritance in the land. They were not going to get anything when they got to the promised land. It was not all blessings. And this is, remains true, that there are many things that are wonderful blessings and that people see as unfair for those that are in the full-time ministry, but it's not all sunshine. And there are a lot of things that people, if they knew what was up, they wouldn't want it, even if they did get to get paid for nothing, as some people accuse us of doing. You just golf and, and work one hour a week, right? First of all, the only golf I've ever done is putt-putt golf, but, you know. And this is not to say that the Lord is giving the priests, it's not religious corruption, that they get all this stuff just because so they can get rich and fat and happy. God will judge the priests severely when they begin to get corrupt and abuse the people, most notably in 1 Samuel 2 with the sons of Eli. But Micah will address this, Jeremiah will address this, Malachi will address this, even Jesus and John the Baptist will address this. So the Lord is not giving them special privileges. He's allowing them to be provided for so that they can do the work of a priest full time. Verse 21. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. And again, we've seen many examples of that in this section of Numbers. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance." For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. So the Levites also were to be paid by the tithes of the people in exchange for their service. So they were not eating of the sacrifices. That was reserved for the priest and his family. But the tithes that the people paid, which we will spend some time at another day to discuss the different kinds of tithes that were brought in, but in exchange for their service, which was to help the priests. And many times when it says a man will carry the ashes of this sacrifice or a man will lead the scapegoat, this is likely a Levite that was doing that. But their primary job was to guard the tabernacle, both when it was in transit and, excuse me, and also when they were encamped. They provided a buffer zone for the people. And in return, the Levites would not have delegated land in the promised land, but they will be given, as we'll see in chapter 35, 48 villages 
that are theirs. These are Levite cities, and they get the pasture land around them because not every Levite served in the temple all the time. If you read about it in Luke, when Zechariah comes to minister in the temple, it was their turn. It was his time to be there, so they had to do these things in shifts. But they were given villages with their pastors. And it would be a very dark time in Israel's history when the Levites and the priests were unable to serve because of financial difficulty. We read about, for example, in Nehemiah 13.10, the priests and the Levites left the temple, which they had just rebuilt, to go work their fields because the people were not contributing their tithes to the temple, and so they were not able to eat, so they had to go work. And Nehemiah was very angry about that. He got angry about a lot of things for good reasons, if you read that book. Verse 25 And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. And your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress. Meaning, a man who owns a vineyard is going to give the first tenth of his fruit of the vine, you are going to treat your contributions that you receive financially as what you make, and you are going to tithe out of that. So you shall also present a contribution to the Lord from all your tithes which you receive from the people of Israel, and from it you shall give the Lord's contribution to Aaron the priest. Out of all the gifts to you, you shall present every contribution due to the Lord. From each, its best part is to be dedicated. So what do we tithe? What do we give to the Lord? The best part. Therefore you shall say to them, when you have offered from it the best of it, then the rest shall be counted to the Levites as produce of the threshing floor and as produce of the winepress, and you may eat it in any place, you and your households, for it is your reward in return for your service in the tent of meeting. And you shall bear no sin by reason of it when you have contributed the best of it, but you shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel lest you die." So this is, this is important. The Levites were to offer a tithe of their own payment. So he says, you are going to be paid not just money. They would tithe money, but they also were to tithe grain and animals and livestock and, and fruit. So he says, that's how you are going to get paid. He says, but I expect you to tithe from what you are given. He also emphasizes they were to serve in the sanctuary, but never to touch the holy things. So there were limits to a Levite's job. They could not, for example, go into the holy place. So this is why, a couple of things. Number one, this is why I, as your pastor, am paid by the church here. And this is also why I tithe out of my own pay. And you will hear people that will say things like, well, the church pays me, so if I tithe, it's just going right back to the church, so why not just cut out the middleman and I won't give anything? Because the pastor also needs to learn that what he receives is from the Lord and not from himself. And I need to make sure that I myself have some skin in the game in what's going on here. And so that is what I do, and that's what I ought to do. And this does transfer over to the New Testament, because in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said this, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, priests and Levites, get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? We just read about that. In the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So every so often, there's some group in the church that wants to say something like, pastors shouldn't be paid because it should be given freely. It is 1,000% biblical that the people who preach the gospel, especially the Lord says, 
teachers are to be paid from the contributions of the congregation because they need to be able to take the time to study and learn from the word and also to intercede for the congregation. So that chapter 18, he's giving laws about the priests and the Levites, but what it is in context, why it was included in this part of Numbers, is that he's trying to answer the fears of the people. How are we to avoid, eventually we're all going to be dead if it keeps going on like this, but God reminds them, no, no, I've set up Aaron and the Levites to stand in the gap for you. This is actually extended commentary on the story of Aaron's rod that budded. So just a little Bible study note for you. When you're reading your Bible, consider why does one passage flow into another? Especially if it's not a story and it kind of jumps from one thing to the next. Why was this put here? Look at the Gospels, for example. They're not all necessarily in chronological order. That's okay. But why do you think the, the evangelist put this section right here? You know, and, and then what you can do is you can say, okay, Luke put this section here, Matthew put it here. What's the different emphasis they're trying to get across by how it's been structured? They're not contradicting one another, but how they put it together can help present a message. So uh, that's just a little lesson for you in your own Bible study. Let's move on to chapter 19. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, this is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer, you maybe have heard of this one, without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, not Aaron, note that, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. Notice, usually they would take the offal, they would take the intestines and the skin, and they would remove them before they were burned. So the whole thing is being consumed. Verse 6, And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening, meaning he cannot come back into the holy place. The one who burns the heifer, probably a Levite, shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. This is the law of the red heifer, which is also related to the concerns of the children of Israel at the end of chapter 17. How are we to survive? Well, he's going to give them this law, and he hasn't explained it yet, that the red heifer's ashes were to provide cleanliness from somebody that was around a dead body. So it's a very specific thing, but it's placed here in order to soothe the concerns of the congregation. Now, this law of the red heifer has become, you might say, infamous especially on, uh, in prophetic circles, 
due to its association in the modern day with the restoration of the temple. You maybe have heard somebody giving a prophetic update and they'll say they've got a, a red heifer, a blemishless red heifer in Israel. There was actually, uh, I was looking this up, as recently as 2022, the Temple Institute, which is a Jewish group, not a Christian group, but a Jewish group that is trying to rebuild the temple. They purchased five blameless or blemishless red heifers from Texas and brought them over in September. Well, where else are you going to get perfect cows, right? You've got to go to Texas. So that they could, they could have them ready. Now, why, why is that significant prophetically? Well, it, it kind of is and it isn't. Uh, here's how it is significant. In order to restore the temple, what they're saying is we first would have to cleanse the temple mount from all of the Jewish lives that have been lost there, from the mosque that was built there. And as we see here, not explicitly, but this is how the rabbinic tradition evolved, is that this sprinkling of the red heifer's blood will enable us to rebuild the temple and come in. So as far as they're concerned, they cannot have a temple unless they have killed the red heifer and done this ritual. Now, why does that matter prophetically? Here's why, because in the book of Revelation, there is a temple into which the Antichrist goes and establishes himself and, and says that I am God and you must worship me. So if we're looking for the end to come, we would expect that there would be a temple. There is no temple. So if one would be built, it would be exciting because like when Israel came into the land, things are being set up for fulfillment. Now here's why this is less than significant, because we are not waiting for any intervening signs before the rapture happens. Jesus said, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. It'll be totally unexpected. So any number of things could happen between now and then. They could build the temple and Jesus would not come back for a thousand years. Or there could be no temple and after the rapture, they build it, you know, quick, fast, in a hurry. So I'm not, th this can be an exciting thing to look at, but this is not something that must happen, you know, and I, I doubt that they would, uh, allow the project to be slowed down very much uh, if it really came to that. So uh, it's, it is interesting to look at. And it's also funny as you read this story, uh, it's, it's almost a minor thing in the scripture, but according to the rabbinic traditions, it's, it's very important for them. So what do we actually see here? This is a young female cow. That's what a heifer is without blemish. So uh, the modern uh, way of looking at it is, is it can't have more than one white hair. It has to be perfectly red. That's not scripture, but that's how they have interpreted it. Never been yoked, meaning it's never been put to work. And then they would take it, slaughter it outside the camp. Eliezer would sprinkle the blood towards the tabernacle seven times, and they would burn it. He would throw into the fire cedar wood, hyssop, which we, we're not quite sure what plant exactly hyssop was. That's a transliteration. Uh, it, a lot of people think it was marjoram or something like that. So uh, the point is it was very easy for them to dip it in something and it would soak up liquid very well. And then scarlet yarn. If you remember the cedar wood, the hyssop and the scarlet yarn were what were used to cleanse the leper after the leper had been declared clean. So there's a connection to those two ceremonies here. You can go back to chapter 14 of Leviticus and read about that if you like. And then these ashes were to be stored outside the camp, accessible to anybody to make the water for impurity, which we're about to read about. The Eliezer and the Levite would wash and be unclean until the evening. And uh, then they would have this ready. They were supposed to always have these ashes available. Now, what they would use them for, look at verse 11. <clears throat> Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. 
He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel, because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. So you've got to be clean if you touch a dead body with the water for impurity. And we say, what is that? We keep reading. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. Every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches someone who is killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean, so when this happens, they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering, that's that red heifer, take the ashes, and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. That word fresh is the word living water. So some interpret this has to be flowing like from a river or something like that. Fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then a clean person, not a priest, not a Levite, just a clean person, shall take hyssop, dip it in the water, and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there, on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. Thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and at evening he shall be clean." If the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. Because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him, he is unclean, and it shall be a statute forever for them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening." So here we see what the red heifer was used for, creating this water for impurity. Some translations have water of cleansing. Uh, they're, they're trying to clarify what it means by that. And the word is actually impurity in the Hebrew there, but it's the same thing. So if somebody touches a corpse, maybe, maybe you're ministering to a relative who's died in battle uh, or somebody died in your house while you were there. If you find human remains out in the field, you would be unclean for seven days. And if it happened in the house, then the house would be unclean. And anything that was open would be unclean, which is, that's just good hygienic sense, isn't it? And what you would do on day three and day seven, they would be sprinkled with this water for impurity, which is they would take the ashes from the pile of ashes from the red heifer. They would mix it in, in living or running water. And then they would take hyssop, which remember is like marjoram. They would dip it in the, the water and they would sprinkle it. Hyssop is also what they used in Exodus 12 when they spread the blood on the doors. And this passage helps us understand what David meant in Psalm 51 verse 7 when he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be white as snow. Because you remember, David was guilty of blood guilt, the blood of Uriah. So he's asking the Lord, cleanse me with hyssop. He's referring back to this chapter right here. So you do this on this third day and on the seventh day, be sprinkled with the water for impurity. And on the seventh day, they would both wash the person that sprinkled and the person that was unclean. They would wash, they would change, and they would be clean. And God stresses the absolute necessity of this law, like over and over again, to cleanse the people from death. He's painting a picture here. Death makes you unclean. 
And this is an important lesson because as we know from Romans, the wages of sin is death. From Ezekiel, the soul who sins shall surely die. Jesus said, in the, or the Lord said in the garden rather, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. So death is a big deal. It is not, as Yoda said, a natural part of life. It is an aberration. It is an intrusion into life. And you see this picture and it's, it's very clear, the, the imagery of Jesus here, isn't it? That Jesus, who was also the, the spotless, blameless one, perished outside the camp to cleanse us all from death through the water for impurity. That's a picture of baptism. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. The writer to the Hebrews picked up on this. Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. It says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, that's this chapter, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says, this water is great, and it, but if that can purify your flesh, surely the more valuable blood of Jesus that has been sprinkled over us will be able to cleanse our souls from sin and liberate us from death entirely. Once again, in context, this was all to calm the people's nerves about the dangerous holiness of the presence of God. What happened? All these people are dead. Aren't we all unclean now? And God goes, yeah, but don't forget, you've got the red heifer to go and cleanse yourselves. So that's why those instructions were included there. Okay, let's get to chapter 20 now, and we'll, we'll slow down a little bit uh, to, to get through these stories. Uh, there are several narratives in this chapter. None of them are happy except for kind of the last one. But remember, this is a major transition chapter in the book of Numbers. This is narrating the end of the wilderness wandering and the perishing of that last generation. And we begin just by reading verse 1. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, the last we left Israel, they were at Kadesh, but it says they returned in the first month. It does not narrate which year this was, but chapter 33, verse 38 is going to tell us that Aaron died in the 40th year since they left Egypt. So we would assume that this would also, because of the way this chapter is laid out, was about the 40th year since they left Egypt. There's still a year plus before the 40 years of judgment is over, but they're going to begin from Kadesh, making their way into the, the promised land. And then uh, they're going to, they're going, the Moses is going to leave them as they go into the promised land from there. So it's been a long time. Somewhere in between uh, the Lord judging them at Kadesh Barnea and here, they've been wandering in the wilderness. And while they come back, while they're in Kadesh, where, as we're going to see, they were going to uh, send envoys to Edom to ask permission to pass through, Miriam died. Miriam, of course, was Moses' sister. She had rebelled and grumbled against him at one point. She was a great woman, wrote some scripture, right? The horse and rider thrown into the sea, I will sing unto the Lord. She was a prophetess. Uh, I, I, I must say, though, she doesn't come off well in most of the stories we have of her. Uh, and it, it was a little embarrassing to see some of the commentators I was reading falling over themselves to say great things about Miriam so that they would not be accused of hating women. 
Uh, she and Aaron and all the rest of that generation are going to perish in the wilderness because they did, not lack, they did not have faith. But that does not mean that she was not somebody that we could look up to. In fact, you see in the New Testament a bunch of people named Mary. Mary is the English version of the Greek word Mariam, which is the Greekified version of the name Miriam. So Jesus' mother was named after Moses' sister. And this chapter is going to have nothing but tragedy for us. On top of the previous four decades that pretty much go unnarrated, even though the destiny of Israel was bright, they were going to endure hardships. And you know, it's the same thing for us. We have heaven waiting for us on the other side, the celestial city, as John Bunyan used to put it. But Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. And he said, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And he gives us his peace. You're still going to have tribulation. So the question that we're going to ask tonight as we go through this is, how are we as Christians to lead and set an example and help people to the promised land through wilderness years? Peter compares us to sojourners and exiles going through the days of our wandering. So how are we to endure? How are we to lead people through? And we're going to look at Moses, who unfortunately does not do it right in this story. Look at verse 2. They're still there. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We've been here before. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Once again, no water. And again, the people complain against Moses about it. This happened in Exodus chapter 17 when they first came out of Egypt, and they were gone through the Red Sea. They hadn't got to Mount Sinai yet, but they had no water. And despite 40 years plus of provision from God, which included manna from heaven and quail occasionally, they thirst for water, and they begin to complain. And that kind of what defines a wilderness, isn't it? It's a thirsty place. The psalmist wrote, I, I thirst for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. That's what defines a spiritual wilderness. And this can be any number of things in your personal life. When your marriage is on the rocks, that's a spiritual wilderness. When the paycheck has not come in on time and the bills are stacking up, that can be the wilderness. When there is sickness that comes to your house, that's the spiritual wilderness. And we are very apt to complain in those seasons, despite the many provisions God has already given us before. You'd think after the first time or two that God miraculously provides for all your needs, you'd stop worrying. And that is what Jesus tells us to do, right? He said, if, if, look at the lilies, right? If the Lord so clothes the grass of the field, isn't he going to take care of you? But this is what happens. And I think if you look at the church as a whole in America, we're in a wilderness season. It's cultural and moral decline. Without standing on any kind of soapbox, I don't think it's any secret that the gospel is less exalted now in the country than it has been in recent memory. We dwell amidst a people that has forgotten God, has forgotten his provision, and now I think you can see they're starting to get thirsty. They're starting to say, 
Why hasn't God taken care of us? Why are we thirsty? Where's the water? This is why, why did we do, why are we doing things this way again? They don't seem to be working. This is the worst kind of famine. Amos described it in Amos chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. I believe we're living in a famine of the word of the Lord. Famine of hearing of the words of the Lord, notice. There, I mean, there are more Christian radio stations, more Christian books, more Christian podcasts, more churches, more sound teachers and good seminaries and good theology and good uh, ministry methods that are out there. But if you turn on the television or you scroll around the internet for a while, you might think that none of that was going on. And people will say things about the church in profound ignorance that describe that bear no resemblance to what we experience every day. But then you sit there and you go, how can you not know about this? It's a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. It's not that we're not speaking, they're not listening. And in fact, God will sometimes send that kind of thirsty spirit upon a nation in order to get their attention. We talked about this some on Sunday in the book of Daniel. We need to see these moments as opportunities for the Lord to glorify himself, not as inconveniences. And this is where we can stumble, is when we start to look at a, at a nation or a family member or a, or a boss who does not honor the Lord and is not hearing the word of the Lord, hear their complaints and begin to complain in kind about their complaining. And I've done my share of that, and I ought to repent for that. Because this is what happens when you're in the wilderness. And he says, there was no water. When our people begin to complain that there's no word from the Lord, although they don't use those exact words, and we say, it's right here, why aren't you listening? you got to realize there's a spiritual reality to this. Well, look at verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, as they often did. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Man, I never want to pass over that sentence. That means the Shekinah glory of the Lord descended before Moses and Aaron. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, tell the rock, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Moses and Aaron, one more time, gather together for prayer in response to the complaints of the people, and they hear God's voice again to provide water for the people. And when the Lord says, take the staff, it seems to be that he's telling them to take Aaron's budded staff that was in the holy place. Because look at verse 10. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Back to uh, verse 9. Moses took the staff from before the Lord. You remember that in chapter 17, verse 10, was where they had placed Aaron's rod. It could be the, the one that God gave him before the burning bush, or also could be that he's coming out with Aaron's fully flowered uh, staff that he used. Now, when we are in the wilderness, as I just described, and when we find ourselves in crisis mode, whether that's nationally, whether that's in your own household, you can apply this across the board. You need to seek the Lord. And you see that although these crises are very different, although they, they kind of rhyme with one another, it's the same kinds of things, but 
they, they, no matter what happens, they do the same thing. They fall on their face before the Lord. The glory of the Lord appears to them and God speaks to them. That's what needs to happen. And I know it, like I said, you read and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. You can bounce right over it. And that's what we can do when it comes to seeking the Lord in our own wilderness times. We will look for something different and special this time because these are unique, special days. They're not, but they're unique, special days and we need a unique, special way to approach God. But the fact is, there is no such thing. God has given us methods of calling upon his name and they are the same when everything is going great as they are when things are going terrible which is why you have to practice them when things are going great so that you don't have to learn when things are going poorly. You study the word of the Lord. Y'all, in your hands, you have the words of God. It doesn't contain the word. It doesn't represent the word. It is the living word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. You need to read it and study it and meditate on it. That's what I've been doing in my devotions lately. I just read through the whole Bible again. And so now I was doing big, like five or six chapters at a time. So what I've been doing is taking like one verse out of the Sermon on the Mount and just chewing on that for like a whole day. And it just, it just opens up. Like there's a whole world in this little verse right here. And that's what God's word is. Study it, meditate upon it. Pray. I mean, come on, guys. Pray diligently. Pray without ceasing, the word says. Not many things the Bible tells you to do without ceasing. Prayer is on that list. Not to agree it would be a good idea to pray, not to offer up a token prayer, but to actually get on your knees, devote time to the Lord, turn that phone off, and pray. Because the minute you try to get quiet before God, the devil is going to run your whole grocery list through your head. Meditate on the word. Fast. We're coming to the end of the year. Did you fast at all this year? I hope you did. Fast from food. Fast from entertainment. Fast from Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever. Fast. Deny your flesh something so that you can focus your spirit upon the Lord. Now don't do, okay, I'm not going to watch TV, so I'm going I'm to catch up on you know, one of my favorite science fiction novels. No, no, no. You deny this so that you can seek the Lord. Tithing is how we call upon the Lord. I mean, look at Haggai. The Lord tells them, he says, the reason none of your plans are working out is because I'm sabotaging them. Why would you do that, Lord? He goes, because you're building your own houses with paneled roofs and nice walls and beautiful windows and my temple lies in ruins. Evangelize evangelize. Get out and tell somebody else about Jesus. And some of y'all in here do a fabulous job at that. Makes me very proud because that's a shortcoming of mine. So it's good to know that I have those that can strengthen me in in that respect. And worship. Y'all, when we come together and we sing these songs, it's not just to sing along. Take the time to worship the living God. This is how you call upon the Lord. These things don't change. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, meaning food, clothing, water, shelter, they'll all be added to you. But I think what may have happened with Moses, like what happens with us sometimes, is that even with miraculous revelation and insight, they became routine. He got tired. This is the same thing. Yeah, okay, God's going to show up, blah, blah, blah. And and we can see because his attitude has not changed when he comes out in the next following verses. So if you've found that your devotions, first of all, have them, 
But if you find that your devotions are stale and tired, double down, man. Don't do less of it. I'll do more when when I'm in the mood. No, that's when you've got to press forward. Verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. What did God tell Moses to do? Did he tell him to strike the rock? Speak to the rock. Tell the rock to bring forth water. Now, something we need to remember for this story. Exodus 34, 35 tells us that when Moses came out of the presence of the Lord after receiving that second 40-day revelation from God, his face was shining, and it was continually shining, and he would veil his face unless he was speaking for the Lord. And it seems to me, and I'm I'm inclined to believe this was constant in Moses' life, because it describes it as something that happened all the time. When he appeared, he would cover his face. So Moses is up here standing for the people with the shining, glorious face of one who has been in God's presence, and he insults the people with God's authority behind him. He's arrogant. He takes it personally. Now, Moses has been so great about this throughout the whole book, but this time he lets it get to him. Here now, you rebels. Now, was he entirely wrong to call them rebels? No, they were rebels. And he strikes the rock twice. I would think in anger. He hits it twice. God had explicitly told him to tell the rock, speak to the rock. Exodus 17, 6, strike the rock. Numbers chapter 20, speak to the rock. Don't do it like last time. That's a whole other Bible study on its own. Just because God did it this way last time does not mean it's how he wants you to do it this time. But the problem is, for us anyway, the water flowed. And sometimes when you are doing things in your flesh and misrepresenting God, God will still bless it. But we can never confuse blessing with the validation of the Holy Spirit. There are certain things God will always bless because he loves his people. God will bless the preaching of his word, however imperfectly. God will bless the preaching of the gospel, however imperfectly. God will honor his people and honor his name. And sometimes God will allow leaders and even, uh, you might say, congregation members to misrepresent him badly without doing anything about it because he knows it would be a greater blow to the church to remove this person than to allow them to continue. It's mercy that is bringing mercy from the water from the rock, not Moses. We know this because Psalm 106 tells us. It says, They angered Moses at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. And here's something else to consider. They were in sin, yes, but perhaps God was not angry with them. We have to consider that. The Lord is what to anger? Slow to anger. And there was no water. It wasn't illegitimate. It wasn't like they were asking for quail because they were sick of looking at manna. There was no water. And, And they sinned in their complaint. But God is not angry. This was a new generation. Like if we had perished like our brothers. This is a new generation. They hadn't learned these lessons like their fathers had. 
And the Lord was not about to speak harshly to these people. There is a time in ministry and in Christian life where you need to strike the rock. Pastor Tyler's got to get up there and just lay it, let him have it. Fire and brimstone and foaming at the mouth. That needs to be done sometimes. But our main primary calling as Christians is to spread the good news of God's love. We are like the angels at Christmas time. I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. It is far easier to denounce the people for complaining than it is to address the thirst itself. And this is far too easy for Christians to do. Where the people in the world are complaining about the lack of water. They're speaking badly about the church. They're walking in sin. They're doing all kinds of wicked things and, and taking the country to a place we don't want it to go. It's very easy to stand up and point out all the things they're doing wrong. It's much harder to say, how are we going to satisfy the legitimate spiritual thirst that is being expressed poorly here? Aren't you glad that God is able to see through your complaints sometimes, to see what's really going on? Even, even a good husband or wife can do that. When you're angry, maybe you yell and say something, and they know this, I know what's really going on here. And they know, look, you don't really mean this. So I'm, yeah, you know what? Yell, fine. But I'm going to get over there, I'm going to give you a hug, and we're going to be crying and then laughing and hugging in a few minutes. I mean, consider what Jesus said in John 7. The last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of the scripture is said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus saw those thirsty people. And when people get hungry and thirsty, they act out, do they not? If you have children, you know this. You know, when a child gets angry and starts pouting and crying and stomping around, you say, yeah, they must be tired. Or, yeah, they must be hungry. And then we get older and we lose that patience with one another. When very often it's just the exact same things going on. It's the same thing with spiritual thirst. When people are spiritually empty, they have nothing, they're going to begin to act out. And if they're still in their sins, they have no Holy Spirit to guide them towards righteousness. So they can only sin. And so, yes, we do need to call them out, but the church, the New Testament dispensation, is not about being policemen, it's about being EMTs. We're supposed to be out there as hospital workers. We're not a warship, we're a rescue boat. We're there to help these people. And we as Christians need to have a thick enough skin to let all the insults come flying our way without taking it personally so that we can keep loving those people. We can give them what they need. And there is nothing more winsome than a living gospel testimony preached with a smile. Well, they're complaining. They're sinful. They're walking in wickedness. Look at what they're doing. Yes, all of that is wrong. But it's not going to change unless the gospel gets a hold of them. And when the gospel gets hold of somebody, they can be the worst person you've ever met, and it'll completely transform their lives. There is a time to strike the rock, but most of the time, as New Testament gospel preachers, your job is to go out with good news. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. He says, you did not believe in me. So there seems to have been an element of a lack of faith 
When he said, speak to the rock, he goes, I'll speak to it, but I'll also hit it because that's what worked last time. Moses and Aaron, because Aaron was there, are forbidden to enter the promised land with the people. So for good reason, this place was called Meribah, which means contention or strife. Imagine the grief of Moses after this story. All of his dreams, everything he's been working for and consoling himself with has been totally shattered. And how are you going to comfort him? Because he knows he was wrong. It's one thing when something bad happens to you. It's way worse when something bad happens because of you. So how am I, you can't make me feel better. And this is what happens to Christians who are way more excited about the wrath of God than the love of God. They become ineffective. They miss out on the next thing God wants to do. It seems to be what always happens before the Lord pours out that new wine of revival is that the church ossifies and hardens because they're responding to the legitimate sin of the world personally. And they're getting angry and bitter about it so that when God is ready to start pouring out his spirit, they can't receive it. Many people measure spirituality by how angry you get at sin. Jesus said, though, in Matthew 9, 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. You've got to be trusting the Lord, that God is able to handle these complaints. When you see all the terrible things happening on the news, and I'm always warning you all about the news because these people are trying to keep you angry. That's how they keep you clicking, and that's how they make money. Don't fall for it. That's why you get all these weird, obscure stories from nowhere to get you angry. And it might be something to be angry about, but what does that have to do with you? You're supposed to see those things and feel a sense of righteous indignation, but immediately turn it to prayer and desperate crying out to the Lord. We hear, let me just use a real inflammatory example that I think gets us all angry. You hear about the, the drag queens going into schools now, little kids. I mean, that's so messed up that that's going on, right? But we look at that and say, we've got to protect these children. But the heart of Christ would feel that way and also see these men and say, they need my gospel so bad. Brokenhearted for them, not just for the children. That's the difference. Being able to recognize sin, call out sin, even step forward and take strong steps to deal with sin, but always with the goal of saving as many as you can. Jesus Christ is the rock from which the water flows. Which, if you want to get into some really cool typology there, 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says Jesus is the rock that followed them. Jesus was only going to be struck one time. He will never have to be killed again, never have to die again. And that may be one reason among many why the Lord told him, don't strike that rock again. Now listen, I know we face all manner of iniquity in these days, and I've preached on it, and I think you all know that. But we need to be preaching the love and the gospel of Jesus. If all anybody experience when they encounter a Christian is a finger in their face, they're not going to want to hear the gospel. And that's on them, but it's also on us. You've got to have a thick skin and a soft heart. Moses was usually really good about this, but over time, he allowed it to to harden into bitterness. Don't let that happen to you. Verse 14 now. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. Remember, Edom 
was descended from Esau. And the Israelites, of course, were descendants of Jacob. So your brother, Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But verse 18, Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway. And if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. So preparing to enter the land now. Remember, there's about a year left before they're allowed to go in. And they send envoys east from Kadesh to Edom, which is the nation founded by Esau, asking for passage through. And despite the fact that they said, we're only going to consume our own supplies and we'll pay for anything that's missing, their own kinsmen refused them passage twice and sent an army to the border to protect their own land. And the conflict between Jacob and Esau, which began in the womb, will continue until even the days of King Herod, who will persecute the church. Now, I can imagine Moses is not feeling too great right about now, because Miriam is dead. He no longer is going to get to go into the promised land. And a bad leader, this is a sign of a bad leader. In the wilderness, a bad leader will catastrophize their own generation. They will say, the problems I face are worse than any problems anyone else has ever faced. These are unique even to the history of the world. God's never seen anything like this. I don't even think God can fix it. Everything becomes a sign of God's displeasure. Even things that are perfectly normal and happen in the course of every generation, a bitterness and a despair will set in. That's what happens when you don't walk in hope, when you're not preaching a glad gospel. The only thing you've got left is despair. And I won't read this passage. I've read it so many times, but every, I mean like every couple days, you should open up Psalm 37 and read it. It is a word for our time where he says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And boy, is that happening these days, man. Fretting because of evildoers. This generation, the only thing remaining is the rapture. Oh, I sure don't see it that way. And we should know better. After the amazing revivals that God has poured out. So who cares if Edom doesn't want to give us passage? God didn't say that that was what was going to happen next. He just said, go to the promised land. Verse 22, and they journeyed from Kadesh around Edom, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor on the border of the land of Edom, let Aaron be gathered to his people, which is a euphemism for death, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son, bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded, 
And they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. So yet another terrible moment. Aaron is called up to Mount Hor. There are a number of traditional sites where this could be. We simply don't know where it is. We know it's near Kadesh on the borders of Edom. And that's where he's going to die. And what happens here, this is a ceremony of removing the priestly garments with the ephod and everything else from Aaron, putting them on Eleazar, his son. It's the, it's the passing of the guard. He was clothed. He would have gone through the high priestly ceremony when they got back to the tabernacle. And that mountaintop is where Aaron remains to this day until the Lord comes back. He died there. That's how Moses is going to go as well. The people mourned for him for 30 days. So it's amazing how even those that sin grievously in Scripture, the Lord honors after they're done. The Lord looks at your life as a totality, not just at the individual episodes. But the significance of this here, before we get into chapter 21, which is the final travel portion, the significance is the passing of the generations, that there will be continuity after Aaron and Moses are gone. This is what we're told to do in the church. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul told Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul says, I taught you, you teach somebody else, and tell them to teach somebody else, and here we are. That chain has continued down to this day. I love bits like this because as miserable as this chapter is, you have the passing of the torch from Aaron to Eleazar who will go into the promised land and will see the promises fulfilled. And so when we begin to catastrophize about our own generation, we need to remember that the Lord continues the story after us. There's only two ways this church's story is going to end. Number one, with the rapture. Or number two, with a new generation rising up to keep going. And right now, despite the darkness and the despair that many are going to leave behind, they're going to leave and, and not live to see the promised land. But there is a fiery generation of young Christians who are sold out for the gospel message. There's not many of them compared to previous generations, although perhaps that was all chaff, we don't know. But they are fired up for the gospel. And I'm one of them, I'll tell you. And there's a new generation of people out there that don't know Christ, that are going to be saved and sanctified and sent out by God's love to keep preaching the message. You can't stop our God. The gospel is not in chains. This is not the end. And if you think it's the end, you're mistaken. Because you can see it right in front of you every day. Because, you know, we, God doesn't look at generations like the Census Bureau does. Just the older pass on and the younger come up. Aaron is constantly handing over the ephod to Eleazar. It's constantly going on. It's been going on since Paul and Timothy, and it will continue. That's why we do children's ministry, because we believe that there is going to be a future, either the return of the Lord or the delay of the Lord, in which time we must occupy until he comes. We do such a, a, a bad job sometimes of pointing out the not just the shortcomings. It's one thing to point out the sins of a generation. It's another thing to start pointing out stuff you just don't like. I don't like the way they do worship music. We did it differently when I was a kid. I don't like the way they dress. They did it differently when I was their age. I don't like the way they pray. I don't like... Who cares about that stuff? I pray that the Lord would keep us soft and supple on that. 
that we would just be willing to roll with it. What is God doing now? I love what God did in the past. I love reading church history. I love the things I'm nostalgic for, but I recognize that that's done. God's looking forward, and we're going to sing a new song to the Lord moving forward. Moses made the error of representing God's wrath when he should have shown God's mercy. And likewise, we who are in the spiritual wilderness make the error of focusing on the complaint rather than the need behind the complaint. But we have such overwhelming good news that God sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, rose from the dead on the third day, sending forgiveness and eternal life by the power of his Holy Spirit. My God is not intimidated by this generation, and neither should you be. Those in the world will be because they don't have the Holy Spirit and they don't know my Jesus. The work continues. We can't be rigid. We can't be stuffy. We can't be sensitive. Some of the most sensitive people are the people that complain about other people being too sensitive. I don't know how that works, but it does. We need to be committed fully only to the things that really matter or we can miss out. Look with love on the lost sheep and bring them the one thing that can quench their thirst. Some of the last words of scripture will end with this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price.